Um, hey, listen, welcome. Welcome to The Exchange. Uh, my name is Josiah. So glad you guys are here. We're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you would turn there, that would be awesome. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 3. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one um, as we teach through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're walking through 2 Corinthians right now. Uh, hey, as you're turning there, a couple of things I want to share with you guys, a couple announcements. One is Financial Peace uh, University. We are starting that this Wednesday. Uh, it's going to be Wednesday nights at uh, 6.30 p.m. And you can sign up on our website. Go to events and you just click on the link for financial peace. I mentioned this last week, but I took this twice, and I hated it the first time, and I loved it the second time. Uh, the first time, didn't like it so much. The second time, I was about to have my son, and I started to pay attention, and I really, really liked it. And so uh, I would love for you guys to take this. We really do just want to train up people in really every way, but one is to steward what God has given us. And so that will happen this Wednesday. You can go to our website under events, click on the link. We would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, next is this. So if you guys remember last year in the fall, we introduced something called the Discipleship Pathway. And we talked about being with Jesus, learning from Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Uh, we as a church felt that like burden, that responsibility to create, like, hey, how do you make disciples? And so we said, hey, three parts. Be with, learn from, do what he did. And each part kind of had its own like component to it. So we talked about how this year in 2021, we want to invest into a, different, a few different categories. And one was into just healthy biblical relationships. So we are doing something called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. It's an eight-week course to basically walk you through uh, different topics like communication, maybe conflict, different things like that. Um, we would love for everyone to be a part of this. So let me explain this. Um, we asked our groups to do this in the months of June and July. About half our groups are going to be doing this, uh, but this is not necessarily for like married people or engaged people. This is for anyone. Um, if you guys know, coming out of 2020, I think we realized we can do relationships a lot better. I think we can do conflict a lot better. I think we can do disagreement a lot better. And so uh, there's a guy named Pete Scazzaro. He's the pastor of a church in New York, and you can read out his story, but we've used a few of his resources before. He wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. We use some of those things. We've actually printed out like these emotionally healthy assessments. Maybe you've like taken that emotionally spiritual like health assessment. Um, that's all from him and his ministry. So they put together this thing called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And the idea is like we love God through just healthy spirituality, and we love others, and they put together this course on emotionally healthy relationships. Now, I've noticed that a bunch, uh, but we are starting this in June and July. It is eight weeks long. Uh, we have groups for, that are co-ed. That'll be for guy and girl groups. Uh, we're going to have a, guy, a couple guys group do this and a couple girls group do this. Uh, we would love, we would love, love, love for everyone to be a part of this. The cost is $20 per person, but we so believe in this. Well, the church is going to just eat half the cost and just say, for 10 bucks per person, you get a little workbook that you take during the videos, and then you get a daily devotional that you read throughout the week. Um, this does take work. This does take effort. But if you want to work on maybe just, again, communication or conflict or different things, it's going to be worth it. So we would absolutely love for everyone here to be part of it. So please consider this. Uh, go again to our website, and under events, you'll see EHR, or Emotionally Healthy Relationships. You can click on that. That begins in June. Uh, my group has started a little bit early because we had to for conflict reasons. But that begins soon. We would love for you guys to be a part of this. Please be a part of this. Um, again, if you ask us, like, how do you invest into your church when it comes to relationships, communication, conflict, we would say this is going to be a big part of it. Okay? So that's what's happening. Amen? Yes? Please consider it. Please be part of it. It's less of an announcement and more of like a vision and strategy for discipleship. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, if you've been with us, we've been walking through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and just trying to look at this whole idea of a new way to live, a new way to live. Now, I'm so excited for our text today and just moving forward because we're kind of getting now into like the heart of 2 Corinthians. I mean, the first couple of chapters, at least for me, are, were some, somewhat difficult because it's Paul talking about some of his travel plans, what's going on. But here we kind of get into like the heart and soul. 
of just this, this text of this book, I mean, there's some incredible chapters ahead. My favorite chapter in the Bible is, is uh, 2 Corinthians 5. I mean, it's just rich. It's just packed with so much. So I'm excited to be kind of entering into this phase as we walk through 2 Corinthians. Now, if you're with us last week, just to kind of catch you up where we've been, Paul's been really kind of speaking into all the conflict around him. Uh, the church, has, has, there's a lot of like bad, I guess, gossip going on about Paul. He's not a man of his word. Is he really a true apostle? They actually wanted a letter of recommendation before Paul comes to them. And Paul's like, I planted this church. You want a letter of recommendation from me? Like, you are our letter of recommendation. Like, it's you. So Paul's basically, as we saw last week, just showed us a few big ideas of how we want to invest into people, not paper. He goes, I don't need a paper. I don't need a letter of recommendation. People are, it's you. We want to have a legacy where we invest in people. Paul talked about his confidence coming from Christ. And here's how Paul ended last week, and it leads into this week. Paul ends in verse 6 by saying, The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter, or the law, the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, God, the Old Testament, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. And now here in ch uh, chapter 3, verse 7 through 18, he's going to be comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. How what we have is incredibly more glorious. It's better than the Old Covenant. And so we're going to kind of walk through verse 7 through 18 and look at these comparing and contrasting between what we once had with what we now have in Christ. That in the New Covenant, we have grace. We have the Spirit. We have transformation. We have freedom. We have boldness. I mean, Paul just lists thing after thing of all that we have in Christ in this better and new and glorious covenant. So I just want to read this as a whole, and then we'll break it down just verse by verse. But I really do believe, you guys, this is, again, less, I pray. Like, I pray this is less in some ways of a Bible study and more of a time where we can commune with God. I want this to be a Bible study. Yes, we will talk about some things, and there's going to be some information. But the point from our text even today is it's not about information, but it's about transformation from beholding and looking into the face of Jesus. That we don't want to just come to church and learn new things. Learning new things might be beneficial, but might not change your life. How do we learn, relearn the gospel? How do we look into the face of Jesus? How do we just enjoy him? How do we find our hearts happy in him, as we'll look at? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's just read verse 7, all the way through 18, all right? So remember, Paul just said, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Verse 7, he picks up on that still and says, now if the ministry of death, he calls the old covenant the ministry of death, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is permanent. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they, his Jewish brothers and sisters, when they read the old covenant, that, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Thank you, Jesus. And we all, with unveiled face, like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The title today is simply, From Glory to Glory. From Glory to Glory. He goes, the law, the old covenant was glorious, but we have a greater glory. Another degree of glory in Christ. You know, there really is so much here. And I, I just, I'm praying, as we just read verse 18, that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus as we just behold him, as we look at him, as we study him, as we study his word. Amen? Can we just pray and just invite the Lord to just be here with us? Father, we just thank you so much for this time we get. 
it is humbling to, to read passages like this that are so rich. There's an assumption of just even knowing the Old Testament, of knowing what he's talking about with Moses. God, I just pray that you'd bring clarity. I pray that you'd bring just insight. But Jesus, that um, by your spirit, as we behold you, Jesus, that we would just be transformed into your image. That this would not, again, just be something we just come and just pay our dues on Sunday, but that, Jesus, you would meet with us, Spirit, you would meet with us, that you would do something in our lives, that, um, God, we would just be made more into the image of your Son, Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. We just ask that you would just be a part of this time in your precious name. Amen. You know, my great-grandma uh, was born in 1901, and I believe she died around 1996. Uh, her name was Grandma Mary, Grandma Mary. Now, I didn't know my other grandmas. Uh, my other grandma, I think she passed away when I was about three. And then my other grandma, I just never really met. And so Grandma Mary, my great-grandma, was like the grandma I have the most memories of. And I was just thinking about her life, like being born in 1901. And I think it was the year 96, I was like seven or eight when she passed. Like she lived to be like 95 years old. I'm thinking, think about all that she saw in her 95 years of existence. Like all the technological advances she got to be a part of. I mean, born in 1901. I mean, the Model T, the the Model T Ford, like the first car that was kind of common to like everyone, uh, was in like 1908. Like she was seven when like the car came out basically. Like, hey, have you heard this, of this new thing called like the car? Like, oh my gosh, like a motor car? Like, I don't know what there were old terms they used, but she got to be like a part of like seeing like horse and buggy to like people started buying cars the first time. I think it was in 1903, I, I think, if I remember right, is when the Wright brothers first took flight. Like they first flew like a balsa wood, you know, barely got off the ground airplane in 1903. Like she was two. And I don't think it was until about the 1950s that commercial flying became, like, a common thing. Like, she's, like, in her 40s by the time I was like, oh, my gosh, we can fly to another city. I'm like, it's amazing to think, like, what she got to see and witness in her lifetime. Like, she went from seeing the car being invented, basically, and, like, distributed at, like, seven years old to basically putting a man on the moon within, like, 50, 60 years. Like, it's crazy to think, like, all the advances she saw. I mean, and it must have been incredible. Like, imagine just, like, how glorious it was and be like, oh, my gosh, like, it's the 20s. And I think finally, like, less than half the population finally gets electricity. Like, oh, there's this thing where you just like flip a switch, you don't have to light a candle. Like, all the things she saw in her, like, 95 years of life probably were just so astonishing. And right now, it's, like, so common, right? It's like, oh, no big deal. Like, I would love to, could you imagine, like, going back in time and, like, taking an iPhone 11 and, like, showing Alexander Graham Bell, like, the guy who, like, patented the, you know, the telephone in here in America, but being like, yo, look at this. Like, this is a phone. He's like, no. And, like, yeah, it has the internet. You're like, what's the internet? Like, I don't even know. You're just connected to everything. You have access to everything. Like, I just think about, like, trying to go back in time and just showing them, like, you thought this balsa wood airplane was cool? Like, look what we get on right now. Like, anyone can do this at any time. Like, it's mind-blowing to think some of the things, like, I was like, how do you explain, like, if we went back 200 years, like, yo, there's this thing called like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. No one knows what it is. It's just like, you know, blockchain words we don't know, say things here. Like, I don't know. I can't even explain it today, let alone to someone back then. But it's crazy to think, like all of the advances we've taken in the last century or so. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I really do want us to think about this. I mean, when the, when the phone first became a thing, when like electricity in homes became a thing, when a car became a thing, when an airplane became a thing, I mean, it was truly incredibly glorious. Like nothing's like that. Like, they've never seen anything like that. Now, for us, where we live, we go, it went from glory, like, that's pretty incredible, to even more glory. Like, it went from incredible to even more incredible. See, Paul is basically saying, when the law first came out, everyone's like, oh my gosh, we have revelation from God. God met with man. God gave us a law. That's glorious. It was incredibly glorious. Because you know what's better than God just writing on stone? God actually took on human flesh and walked among us. Like, you think that was glorious? We have greater glory. You see, even the day and age we live in, it goes from glory to greater glory. Paul is saying the old covenant was glorious, but obviously what we have in Christ is far more glorious glorious. It went from glory to greater glory. Now stay with me. Paul is going to be comparing and contrasting what we see here. Seven different things. He's like, look at the law. Here's the glory of the law. But it was glorious to them then. Not so much now. It might have been incredible then. But looking back, it's, he goes, basically their glory compared to our glory, their glory doesn't exist. So Paul is comparing and, and then he's saying, look what we have in Christ. So as we walk through this, I want you to see what we have today in Christ, in the new covenant, and what they didn't have then. So we're going to look at these seven comparing and contrast, and here's the idea. Here, we'll put them up here. We're going to see life, not death. The first part always be the new covenant. Righteousness, not condemnation. Permanent, not passing. Bold, not ashamed. Sight, not blind. Free, not bound. Transformation, not information. You see, the law was the second half. 
The law was death, condemnation, there's shame. It was just information, but the new covenant was much more. It went from glory to greater glory. So let's look at the first one, life, not death. Let's read verse 7 again, life, not death. Listen to what Paul calls the old covenant. Verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Life, not death. Paul is explaining, he, he, he actually is referring, just so you know, we need to know this, he's referring back to a story in Exodus 34. Now, actually, throughout this chapter, he's going to be referring constantly back to this glory that Moses had in Exodus 34. See, in Exodus 34, the second time Moses got the law, because two times he had to get the law, the second time he gets the law, he gets the commandments, he gets the tablets on stone, he comes down the mountain, and it says his face was so glorious that they're like, Moses, we can't even look on you. Like, it's too bright. Like, put a veil on, bro. Like, you're hurting our eyes. This is too much for us. Like, they've never seen, like, a light bulb, right? They don't know, like, glowing iPads. Like, they don't know that. Like, Moses, this hurts too much. You need to put a veil on your face. And here's what's interesting. Paul, in verse 7, says that glory, that glory, verse 7, that Moses had, he came with such glory that they could not even look upon him. How much more glory do we have? Now, it's interesting. He calls it glorious, and yet in verse 7, he called it the ministry of death. Paul looks at the Old Covenant as the ministry of death. He says, you know what? The Old Covenant was so glorious, but in reality, all it did was bring death. You know, throughout the New Testament, Paul, think about this again. In the churches in their day, it was primarily a lot of Jews who came to believe in Jesus the Messiah because Paul would go to synagogues at first, and a lot of Gentiles. So Gentiles, anyone who's not a Jew, and you had a lot of Jews coming to know Christ. And so they're starting doing church now. Paul can make references like this, and people are like, oh yeah, I know that story next to this. We might not have that familiar understanding of the Bible like they did then. So we've got to explain it a little bit. But I want you to see this. Paul is saying, remember that, remember that story where they couldn't look upon Moses' face? It was incredibly glorious. But you know what? That, that law that he brought from the mountain is actually the ministry of death. Most of the New Testament where Paul is speaking about the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant he has to remind people the purpose of the Old Covenant because there's a temptation to want to go back to it. There's a temptation to want to go back to the law. And so Paul has to constantly remind them what we have in Christ is far better. So he calls the law the ministry of death. Here's what I mean by that. Here's how the law is the ministry of death. Look at what the law cannot do. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, the first five books, the law can never justify a sinner. The law can't give anyone righteousness. The law cannot give the Holy Spirit the law cannot give us the inheritance we have in Christ. The law cannot give life, and the law cannot give freedom. See, all the law can do is say, here's God's law, here's God's standards, you can't keep it, you fall short, you're guilty. The law reveals our sin. Now, the law is not wicked, as Paul would say. The law is not bad. The law is not evil, but it falls short. It can only tell us how to live. It can't empower us to give us, to give us the life. It can't empower us to do it. So Paul is showing this. He calls it the ministry of death. Now, uh, there's a guy named John Bunyan. He wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, and he also wrote some poems and some other stuff. And I love what he says about the law. I think it's so fitting. He wrote this little jingle or poem. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. He's like, the law says, run, run, you need to run, but it doesn't give me the feet or the hands to run. The, the gospel, though, it says, come and fly, and it gives us wings. This is probably where Red Bull got its like, slogan. I have no idea. But this idea of, like, the gospel doesn't just tell you what to do. It empowers you to do it. The law falls short. It can only say, do this, but it leaves you empty. It leaves you dead. You know, I want you to think about this. This was called the ministry of death carved on stones versus the new covenant where it's written on our heart. Now, I think this is incredibly interesting. Do you guys remember the first time the Ten Commandments were given? What happened? Moses takes the law. He takes the commandments. He comes back. He sees the people basically in sin, worshiping a pagan, a false god. They're doing their thing. Moses gets angry, breaks the commandments. And that day, basically, God has to enforce justice on the people. And the day the law came, listen to this. It's Exodus 32. The day the law came, it says this, Exodus 32, 28. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. The law is given, and what happens? 3,000 people died. God gives a law, it brought death. That day, 3,000 died. No, it's so great about this. I love how the Bible just it always interprets the Bible. I love how the Bible always has like unique insights. Because that was the day the law came. 
In Acts chapter 2, the day the Holy Spirit comes, the day the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, Peter gets up, he preaches the gospel. It says in Acts 2.41, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The day the law came, 3,000 people died. The day the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people are saved. Only the Bible could do this. Only the Bible could say, do you not see the difference of the covenants? One brought death, another brings life. You see, the letter kills, the Spirit brings life. Again, we have life, not death, number one. Number two, Paul's going to say, is we have righteousness, not condemnation. Look at verse nine. Verse nine. Paul says, in verse nine, for if there was glory uh, in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, here, Paul calls it the ministry of condemnation. He called it the ministry of death. Now he calls it the ministry of condemnation. So we have righteousness. Then he says, but we, the new covenant, is the ministry of righteousness. So we have righteousness, not death. Now, I want us to get this. The law, all it can, can do, really, is condemn. This is the ministry, the Old Testament, you could say the, the Torah, is the ministry of condemnation. It says you're guilty. See, the law could never make us righteous. It could just show us what righteousness looks like. You see, but the new covenant is the ministry of righteousness. It gives us righteousness. Paul in Galatians 3.21 says this. He says, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Righteousness could never come from the law. If it could, then Christ died in vain. Christ had to come to bring righteousness. So the new covenant brings righteousness, not condemnation. Old covenant brought condemnation. New covenant brings righteousness. I think the best example we see of this in the Bible is in Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3 is one of two of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It really is. But in Zechariah 3, it's incredible. Zechariah has this vision of Joshua the high priest. His name was Joshua. He's the high priest this time. Zechariah has this vision that Joshua the high priest is standing before God. And it says, as the high priest stands before him, it says his, his outfit became dirty. It became filthy, disgusting. Think about it. The high priest's garments, which was like gold with rubies and different gems on it. I mean, incredibly valuable, incredibly beautiful. Standing before God, it became like filthy. And in Zechariah 3, he says, then I saw Satan in heaven accusing him. Satan's going, you see that? God, he's filthy. You're filthy. You're dirty. You're disgusting. Then it says in Zechariah 3, the angel of the Lord says, take off those garments and put on a new robe, put on clean robes. And I so believe when you read Zechariah 3 and you read the context, the angel of the Lord, we say is a Christophany, it's Christ in the Old Testament. And it's Jesus saying, take off those robes, we've got some new robes for you. Now here's why I love that. The, the high priest stand before God, listen, the Bible says all of us, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. All of us stand before God, and the best of, of the best we can put up for God is just dirty. It's filthy. It's disgusting. Before a holy, pure God, Satan accuses us. He makes us feel the shame in that. Do you not see that? He's accusing them. And then you have Jesus saying, take off those robes. I have new robes for him. You see, the law could only condemn. Only Jesus can give righteousness. Only Jesus can give us new robes. Only Jesus is the one that can say, I'm going to take off your filthy garments and I'm going to give you my garment. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? Listen. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, the law can condemn, but Jesus can robe us in righteousness. You see, the law... It was the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. But he goes, you know what? In Christ, in Christ, the law could never produce righteousness, but Christ did. And Christ robes you and wraps you in his righteousness. That's why Paul does say this in Romans 8.1, For there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what's interesting. Paul's like, hey, remember Romans 7? He's like, that's all about the law. He's like, the law is condemnation, but in Christ there's no condemnation. He goes, in Christ, actually, if you walk according to the Spirit, he goes, that, that, you need to walk according to the Spirit for that to be true. But in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation anymore. See, the law was the ministry of condemnation, but in Jesus, we have the ministry of righteousness. He says, in Christ, it's so much better. You're not condemned. You're robed in his righteousness. You're not found guilty. You're found pure and innocent, wrapped up in what Jesus Christ has done for you. I, I honestly find this to be so, so freeing for me. Because in so long, I do want to clean myself up. I want to feel good about what I can do, how I can feel good, be good. And in reality, it's just Jesus robes me in his righteousness. You're robed in his righteousness. See, only the new covenant can do that. Only Jesus can do that. It's righteousness, not condemnation, number two. Number three is this. Let's keep going. What does he say? Number three. Number three, we see it's permanent, not passing. This new covenant is permanent, it's not passing. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Paul's just comparing and contrasting. He says in verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. 
because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is permanent. It's not passing. He goes, you know, the law was incredibly glorious when it was first given. But this glory of the new covenant is so much better, it almost appears as if the law has no glory. Right? Like the idea is like I could have a flashlight up here or like some sort of beam or some sort of light that's really bright. But if somehow I could like bring, you know, the sun to earth without killing us, it'd be like that would just be engulfed in the sun's brightness. Like, like it doesn't matter if I have a bright light up here. When I bring, some, when I bring something with greater glory, it's going to make it feel diminished. He goes, this is the new covenant. He goes, don't you see that the law is glorious, but it almost appears to have no glory at all because the glory of the new covenant is so much better, it surpasses this glory. You can't even tell that had glory to begin with. I mean, I think that is so brilliant. You guys, let me just point this out again. The old covenant law is, is not bad. The law is not bad. It's not. It's actually glorious, as he says. It is glorious. I want to point this out. When you read the old covenant, when you read, you know, the law, when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when you read these books of the Bible, here's why it is glorious. The law reveals to us the nature and character of God. Like, I would encourage you, obviously, know the old covenant, read it. It makes us appreciate way more what we have in Christ. But when you read the old covenant and you go, oh my gosh, God, when you say do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not do these things, I know your love, I know your character, I know your standards, I know who you are, that you are good, you care about justice, you care about these things, God. See, the law is glorious. It truly does reveal the character and nature of God. We can get to know God a lot through the old covenant. It is so glorious. But then when you realize Jesus has come on the scene, when you realize we have God in the flesh, not God on a mountain with one man, you go, it's way more glorious. You see, John chapter 1, verse 14, it's a verse we know, but listen to this context. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the glory of Jesus is so much better than the glory of the law. It's not like we get an idea of the character and nature of God. We see the character and nature of God. He's full of grace and truth. That when Jesus comes on the scene, they go, wow, he, he's a man of truth. Just, I think, reflects the old covenant, God's heart, God's heart for justice and truth, how to live. But then he's full of grace. You see, the glory of Jesus surpasses the glory of that mountain that day. You see, what we have is permanent. It is not passing. He says, what you have in verse 11 is permanent. The old covenant was passing, but what you have in Jesus, it's not going anywhere. And it surpasses the glory that we saw. Again, I love how John Calvin says this. He kind of already said it, but he said it this way. He said, just as the moon and the stars, though they are themselves bright and spread their light over all the earth, yet vanish before the greater brightness of the sun, so the law, however glorious in itself, has no glory in the face of the, gos of the gospel's grandeur. It's nothing compared to how incredible the gospel is. You see, we have something that is permanent. It's not passing. Verse 12, again, 11 says that much more will what is permanent have glory. The, the law was glorious, but the new covenant is way more glorious. So this is permanent, not passing. Number four, Paul's illustration, all this, he says, we're bold, not ashamed. The new covenant lets you be bold, not ashamed. What is he saying? Look at verse 12. What does he say? Verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. Okay, stop there. He goes, this is really actually interesting. He goes, we, since we have such a great hope, we're bold. We are bold, he says. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to hide that the glory was diminishing. Now, if Paul didn't say this, we would have no idea that's why, Paul wore, or that's why Moses wore the veil. If you read Exodus 34, we're told they came down the mountain. They go, Moses, your face is too bright. Like, we can't look upon you. And so he put his veil over his face. Then when he meet with God again, he was allowed to pull his veil up, meet with God face to face. How beautiful is that? But he'd go back down the mountain and put the veil over because it hurt everyone's eyes. Like, we can't even look upon you, Moses. It's too much for us. But Paul gives us unique insight. He goes, it was actually over time not to keep the glory of God like hurting their eyes on Moses' face is actually because Moses knew the glory was fading. He didn't want people to know that it was fading. I find this really, really interesting. Moses knew he wore this veil because he knew the glory of that covenant of his time with God was fading. You know, it, it, was, it was losing its glory. Now, I do want to put it like in this way. You know, when you kind of 
walk actively your Christian life out, like when you do it in a religious manner, you will notice that that glory will fade away over time. (laughs) Meaning, if you try to serve Jesus, because this is what you have to do, right? You have to go to church, you have to pray, you have to read the Bible. If you do it in a religious kind of manner, there might be some glory there, but over time it's going to fade away. Meaning, Moses knew that this was fading. This covenant of the law of doing it by works, living for God by works, it was fading away. It was showing us that there needed to be something that would be more sustaining, more long-term. I find this interesting because I find this true in my life. There are times when I think that, not, not just this, but religious people do burn out. And I find myself, when I'm burning out in ministry, it's probably because I'm doing things from a place of religiosity. When I find myself getting tired and exhausted and just frustrated or whatever it might be, when I find myself burning out, losing glory, it's because I'm doing things out of a religious manner, not out of relationship with Jesus. When I'm enjoying Jesus, when I'm seeking Jesus, when I have true good communion with God, I have not just like external energy. I have like this internal energy to keep going. And I think here's what religion does. It's, it, Moses received the glory. It was this external thing affecting him. But when the gospel goes into your heart, it's not this external energy. It's this internal energy. It's almost like you have your own nuclear reactor of energy to like keep going. And I, I can tell my own heart when I'm getting tired and exhausted, it's because I'm acting out of religiosity. And I'd say with Moses, listen, this glory was fading. The glory was fading. And Paul's like, but not ours. Our glory can't fade. It's not something we receive outwardly. It's this inward transformation. Our glory does not go anywhere because Christ lives in us, the hope of glory. Like, this can't go anywhere. This is not some religious thing. Here's what Paul is saying. We are bold unlike Moses. That's interesting to me. Because of our great hope, we have this boldness. He goes, we're bold, not ashamed. Moses was getting shameful of losing the glory, but we're not ashamed. We'll never lose the glory. We could never lose the glory. See, again, church, let me just say this. Where does our boldness come from? It comes from this hope. If you've seen people who are bold for Christ, because they have a great hope. They know the hope of his return. They know the hope that they have in him, that they're truly free and forgiven. I think what hope gives us a unique boldness. And he goes, since we have this hope, we are bold. We are bold. And I'll say this, the new covenant gives you boldness. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Moses was beginning to get shame over the old covenant. But Paul's like, you can never be ashamed of God, of what Jesus Christ has done, because he was never ashamed for us. Like, we can't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. And so, again, number four is we're bold, not ashamed. He goes, we have a boldness. They didn't. They lost it over time. It became religion. They missed the point. But our glory does not fade. Our glory does not go away. Number five is this. He says, we have sight, we're not blind. We have sight, but they're blind. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, we'll pick back up. He says, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. Why? Well, for to this day, when they, my Jewish people, my Jewish brethren, when they read the the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Sight, not blind. Please stay with me. Paul's not like hating on the Jewish people. Paul is a Jew. Paul loves the Jewish people. Paul would call himself like a Jew of the Jews. Basically. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I, like, I love my Jewish brethren. But Paul just pointing out something he's seen within his culture, within his community that breaks his heart. Now, let me just point out something really quick. We know this. Paul desperately loved his Jewish, his Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul said something I don't know if I could ever say. He said something in Romans 9. We'll put the verse up here. Romans 9, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says about his Jewish uh, brethren. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. I don't know if we get what Paul just said. Paul's like, I have such a burden. I'm grieved. I'm broken for my, my Jewish brothers and sisters. That I actually, if I could be a curse from Christ, condemned to hell, so that all of them could believe I would do that. Unbelievable love there. I don't know if I could say that. Like, I would be sent to hell for you. I, I, don't, I couldn't say that. Paul's like, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters so much that I would be a curse from Christ if they would just believe. I want you to understand something as we read these, this text in verse 14 to 16. Paul has a deep love for his Jewish brothers and sisters, but he says something very interesting. He says, there's a veil that remains over their heart when the old covenant is read. He goes, they can't see Christ or who it speaks of. He goes, they're missing the point. So when they read Psalm 22 where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We clearly see Jesus who quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. They don't see him. When we come to Isaiah 53, 
It talks about the Messiah being beaten and broken and whipped and blood being shed and his face being demolished. When you read all the specifics and details, we clearly see Jesus, but they do not see Jesus because there's a veil over his eyes, over their eyes. Paul says when they read those times, they can't, when it says that he'd be born in Bethlehem, they don't get it that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he fulfilled this. Like there's just a veil over their eyes. They can't see how Jesus is the Messiah. Now this is pretty intense to me. He goes, this veil remains over their eyes until they turn to Christ. He goes, once they believe in Jesus, once they put their faith and trust in Jesus, they, the veil is removed, he says. And it's almost like, oh my gosh, how have I never seen Jesus like this to begin with? You know, when I was about 18, I was in California living at the time, uh, just working. I was a part of a men's group. Uh, it was like me and eight other guys. We'd go to a Bible study and we had a little group. And I was probably the only one in that group under 50. It was great. So it was like me, 18-year-old, all these 50-year-old men. And the, the leader of the group was this guy named Steve. Steve was a, a Jewish believer. He called himself like a Messianic Jew, right? And talking to Steve, getting coffee with Steve, he kind of like began to like mentor in some ways. And I remember saying, Steve, like, tell me like your story. Like, what the, what, like how did you start believing? He's like, you know, I was sitting in, um, like, I forget what he called it, but I was sitting in my Jewish school. My rabbi gets up. And he's talking about Zechariah 9.9, how the, the Messiah will be coming in on a donkey. And I remember sitting there, it was like 1975, whatever he said. He's like, I'm sitting there, and I go, why would the Messiah come in on a donkey? Like, what, what is that about? Like, why, don't we see, why wouldn't we see the Messiah come in some other form or fashion or like in a Rolls Royce? Like, why would he come in on a donkey? Like, I just don't get it. And I asked that question, and he kind of dismissed it. And he was honestly just exploring like this, this deep hunger. Like, did the Messiah come? Maybe we missed it. Maybe he's already fulfilled scripture. Could Jesus be the Messiah? And it's led me on this journey to find Jesus as the Messiah. And I, and I love it. I don't know if you've ever been a part. I've been a part of a couple relationships with Jewish people who end up believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And it's so beautiful. Usually it goes along the lines of like, you know, I thought I'd be abandoning my, my Jewish faith or heritage if I became a Christian. I didn't realize I'm actually just becoming more Jewish. I'm becoming like a, a fulfilled Jew. I actually never read the Bible. Now I love the Bible. I thought of several Jewish people who go like, now when I read the Old Covenant, when I read the Old Testament, all I do is see Jesus, and now I appreciate the holidays and festivals. I never cared about that. That's not all I care about now. Like, I love it because it points me to Christ. And here's, here's why I bring this up. Paul had a heart for the Jewish people, and he goes, but when they read the scriptures, and I love how he changed the metaphor, this metaphor of the veil with Moses trying to hide the glory, he goes, now there's a veil over their hearts. And this veil, they, they can't see how this speaks of Jesus until they trust in him, and it's removed. You know, I, I do think of this. It's, it's funny. Uh, Stephen, in Acts 7, was being stoned to death with rocks. Anyways, he was in, he's there in Acts 7, preaches this incredible gospel, and he goes through the book of Genesis and all the way through like, the Old Testament and shares how it speaks of Christ in Acts 7. And in Acts seven fifty one, listen to this. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's like, you've always been so, he's Jewish. He's like, we've always been so stubborn. The Messiah is here. You're about to stone me and murder me. You're about to kill me. And you still don't see that Jesus is the Messiah, and then they killed him. And he goes, there's just a veil over their eyes. They don't get it. Now you go, how is this veil removed? You know, there's a Jewish woman in Acts 16. Her name was Lydia. She was down by the river. They didn't have a temple then, so that's where they would meet. She's just a Jewish woman practicing her Jewish faith. Paul shows up, shares the gospel. Here's what it says in Acts 16, 14. It says, the Lord opened her, Lydia's heart, to heed the things spoken by Paul, and she believed. Lydia is down by the river. Paul gets there and goes, oh, you're, you're practicing like, you know, we don't have a temple, so you're practicing your Jewish faith here? Okay, very cool. Uh, let me tell you how Jesus the Messiah, and it says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that Paul was speaking. You see, I don't know how the veil is removed other than they, Paul says, turn to Christ, and I just genuinely believe we pray for the veil to be removed. I genuinely believe that we need like miraculous, miracle, like divine intervention where the God comes in and just removes the veil. Like, God, save them, save them. This isn't just for Jewish people. I'll say this for Gen There's a veil, I believe, over everyone's heart in some capacity. And we're praying, God, remove this veil so they can see. How can they not see? Like, I don't get it. Part of me is like, how do you not see that this is filled with Jesus? Your old covenant, this book, we call it the old covenant, they call it the Bible. It's just filled with Jesus. How do you not see it? Paul says, well, there's a veil over their heart. But when they turn to the Lord, it's removed. And Paul says in this new covenant, we have sight. We have sight. They're blind, but when they trust in Christ, they'll have sight. I want to keep going, but this is how Paul is comparing and contrasting. In Christ, we have sight. You might be blind now. Pray that the veil is removed. Sight, not blind. Number six is this. We're free, not bound. Free, not bound. Look at verse 17. Now, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
Let's just enjoy this verse for a second. I mean, this is a verse that kind of gets pulled out of context a lot, but I want us to see it in this greater context because here's what Exodus 34, 34 says. It says, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. Here's what I want you to see. Please listen. Whenever Moses would speak with God, he would come in freely and remove the veil. Unbelievable. He'd actually remove the veil and have this like free working conversation with him and God. Now, I'm bringing that out because we're told to come boldly into God's throne room of grace. And I think about this, that wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, like, there is freedom. This idea of God just like, I want there to be freedom. When you come to me, I want you to come with this unveiled face. You know, I want you to come to me. There's freedom to access me. You, you'll be free to know me. That this is not just reserved for Moses, one guy a long time ago, but you're all free to know me the way Moses knew me. That we can go, wow, Moses knew God this way? And he's saying, don't you get the Spirit of the Lord's inviting you into that freedom? Don't you see that the Spirit of the Lord is inviting you into the same relationship with God? This is not just reserved for Moses or a select few from the Old Covenant. This is reserved for all of us. See, he goes, now the Lord is the Spirit. This is probably one of the greater verses we will use on why the Holy Spirit is deity, why the Holy Spirit is God. The Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is the Lord. He's God. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the Greek is just saying, now Spirit, Lord. The Spirit is Lord. And where he is, man, there's freedom. And this is one of those things, church, where I want us to get this. Where the Spirit of God is, when you ever see the gospel go to certain cultures or civilizations, do you notice that there's like more freedom for the people? That if the gospel goes to the east or west, wherever it's gone, it's brought to more freedoms? That whenever the gospel's gone to an area of a lot of oppression, you see like maybe there's an area where there's not a lot of women rights or what it might, whatever it might be, but the gospel comes in, floods that area, and you see, wow, they have a common voice. They have a room, they have a seat at the table. They can speak. Why? Because the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor female nor female for all, one in Christ. Like wherever the gospel goes, you see like a liberation of the people spiritually, culturally, in so many different forms. My point with this is that where God's spirit goes, you just see people being set free, free from vices, free from sin in their life, just free to live for Christ. Let me be really clear again, by the way, freedom is not the way we take it as Americans. We take freedom as I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's not freedom, that's slavery. Freedom does not mean an absence of limitations. Freedom just means you have the right limitations. Freedom, again, is an absence of limitations. A fish out of water is not free. All right, it's dead. All right, freedom, I'm a fish, I'm out of the water, I'm free. You're dead. Right? For us, we could say, I want to do whatever I want when I want. That's not freedom, that's death. See, freedom is, again, the right limitations. It's God saying, here's my law, here's my book. Do these things, you'll experience freedom. See, I used to think the law and commandments of God were to steal joy from me, and in fact, it gives me more freedom. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, so just so I can't have fun. So I can have more fun. So I can have more freedom. See, God's saying it's not an absence of my limitation, of limitations, it's the right ones. And here's the point. When you have the Spirit of the Lord, you have freedom. Because the Spirit of God is the one who's like, hey, this is the way to walk. Walk in it. You'll experience more freedom, more victory when you obey him and walk with him, know him. You go, oh my gosh, God, wait, your view of sexuality is different than the world's view of sexuality. Your view of money is different than the world's view of money. Your view of all these topics is different. And I actually put it into practice. Guess what? I experienced more freedom, more health, less anxiety. Wow, it's true. It works. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen? He goes, we're free. We're not bound. The law kept them bound. We're free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Number seven is this. Transformation, not information. He's been building up to verse 18, I so believe. Like the pinnacle of his argument and what he's trying to point out to us is in verse 18. So verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled face like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You see, it's about transformation, not information. What I mean by that is, the law was information. Do these things. It informed me on how to live. Information is good. But the Bible, the new covenant can go one step further. It doesn't inform you, it transforms you into the same image of a son. So let's just break this down, because I think this is incredibly profound. Look at verse 18. Let's just break this down. He says, we all with unveiled face. Just like Moses would come into the presence of God with that unveiled face, he goes, you come into God's presence, unveil the face. Don't have anything between you and God. Nothing to, to, to distract you and God. Just you and God with an unveiled face. And he says, beholding 
as in a mirror in a different translation. You don't see that here. I actually think it's better than the New King James. And I actually think that in the Greek, it says this. I don't think it says that. So it says, look at verse 18. I'll read to you the way it's, it's really written. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord with an, or with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Here's why I want to point this out. He's saying, we, with an unveiled face, behold us in the mirror the glory of the Lord. Basically, with the unveiled faces, I want you to have intimacy with God. Now, why in a mirror the glory of the Lord? This word that it even uses in the Greek, it just would communicate like polished metal, where we, they back then didn't have mirrors like we have today, where we clearly see ourselves. They, like, imagine like a shield, and you polish it really well, and you're trying to see what you look like. Like, you can see it, but it's not super clear, because we're looking into the mirror to see the glory of the Lord, to behold the glory of the Lord. It's not perfect, but you can get a piece of it. And just this idea of like, what is the mirror? What does this even look like? James 1 used the analogy to view the word of God as a mirror. Like, I believe that you and I behold the glory and beauty of God by looking into God's word. That when you and I behold the Lord, we're looking into his word to understand who is Jesus? What is he like? I want to know his character. I want to know his nature. What did he say? What did he claim? What did he do? What is God like? We behold the glory of the Lord by looking in the mirror. The mirror for us is this. The mirror for us is let's look into the word to see the glory of God. God. See, the mirror reflects Jesus. The word reflects Jesus. This is what he's getting at. The mirror helps us better see Jesus. So when you look in a mirror, you see yourself, but he's saying when you look into the word, see Jesus. You're not going to, you know, the mirrors expose obviously your flaws. When I look in a mirror, it it shows my flaws. When you look in a mirror, it's going to expose your flaws. And that's true. That's part of what the word of God does. Part of the Bible, it exposes our sin nature. It exposes our flaws. But primarily when you look in the Bible, it exposes Jesus. And he says, when you look into the word of God, you're going to see Jesus beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now, please stay with me. I know this is a simple truth and many have said it. No one knows who to attribute it to, but this is incredibly true. And this is what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that you become what you behold. So as you behold Jesus, you'll become like Jesus. So please stay with me. You become what you behold. This is just true. If you're currently looking at, staring at, living your life for something, that whether it's good or evil, you will become like that thing. If you're passionate about making money or whatever it might be, you're going to start to take on that form or that face. You'll like become like those kind of people, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, whatever that culture's like. If you're into like cars, you, the whole idea is like whatever it is you behold, whatever it is you're interested in, you become like that. And he says, beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image. So as you behold Jesus, you become like Jesus. There's something about this book. It's not just about information. Let me learn and read some new things. It's not just that. It's as I look into the word of God, I want to become like Jesus. You see, Paul is saying it's actually even by the Spirit. So please stay with me. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, takes the Word of God to produce the life of God in me. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make you and me more like Jesus. He says that last phrase, it's the Spirit who does this. It's the Spirit who does this. So as you and I read and approach Scripture, please again, don't view this as Old Covenant. Learn some new things. Make sure you're informed well. This is find the person and character and nature of Jesus. Find yourself happy in the person of Jesus. I love how George Mueller, uh, a great man of God, said this. He, he put it this way. He says, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The greatest business I can give myself to is waking up and find my soul happy in the Lord. See, this is what it means to, to look into the mirror of the Word of God. That we're being transformed in the image of Jesus. I love that quote from him because just think about that. He goes, I want to start off my day by finding my soul happy in the Lord. Like, that means if, when I get a ticket or something bad happens or something awful happens, it can't steal my joy because my, my, I've already had my heart find its happiness in the Lord. You see, as we read the Word of God, we should be transformed into the image of Jesus. My point is this. Every church should ask this question. How do you become more like Jesus? How do we become more like Jesus? And we're going to say, we're going to dedicate ourselves to putting our face, like beholding Jesus in his word and trusting his spirit to make us more like him. That we want to be transformed by the spirit of God and by the word of God to become like Jesus, the son of God. That is the hope. The hope is that you and I look into the word not to gain some new information or learn something cool, but you say, Holy Spirit, take your word and transform me. I want to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Are you guys with me? Do we get this? This will change how you and I read the Bible. This will change how we do our morning devotions. It's not so much I have to do this, like Jesus, transform me by your spirit more into your image today.
Jesus, let your spirit of God make me more like you today. We're being transformed. That word transformed is this Greek word metamorpho, and you know what it means, metamorphosis. You are a complete new thing, a new creation, but Paul will pick up on that in chapter 5 again. But just the idea that you're being transformed. There should be change. Christians, as we dedicate ourselves to the Word of God, to Jesus, to the Spirit of God, there absolutely should be transformation. It won't happen overnight, but there should be change. We become more like Jesus by beholding Him in the perfect law of liberty, by looking into the Word of God. I would say get to know Jesus from his word. You thought you could get away with a quote from Tim Keller today, but no, I have a quote from Tim Keller. Listen to what he says. He says, to behold the glory of Jesus means, listen, it means that we begin to find Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. It means a kind of prayer in which we are not simply coming to Jesus to get his forgiveness, his help for our needs, his favor and blessing. Rather, the consideration of his character, words, and work on our behalf becomes inherently satisfying, enjoyable, comforting, and strengthening. If we don't behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, then something else will rule our lives and we will be slaves. If we don't behold Jesus, we're going to behold something else. We don't go to Jesus just, can you fix my issues? Can you give me my needs? As much as we just enjoy his person, his work, his character, his nature, who he is, what he's done. He, Paul, again, makes it really clear. He goes, when we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, we want to look into the glory of the Lord through the word of God, through the mirror of God to reflect Jesus. We're going to become transformed into the image of Jesus. And how verse 18 ends with, he says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God does this. I could never change myself. There's so many books on how to change yourself. We could never change ourselves. Not a real change, not a lifelong change if it wasn't for the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God takes the word of God to produce more of Jesus in us, to produce the Son of God more in us. We're being transformed into his image. Amen? Listen, this will change how you read. This will change how you pray. This will change how you worship. It will change every aspect of how you approach him. They're no longer just empty words during worship that you might just read and go through the motions. You're saying, yes, spirit. Yes, let this be true in me. Produce this in me. I believe this. Yes, amen. I agree with this. That's how you read the scripture of Jesus. You say this about me. I do believe this. I agree with this. I'm adopted. I'm a son of God. I'm, I'm born again. I agree with these terms. I, yes, Lord. And you're just accepting it and embracing it fully. Here's what I want to do now. We're going to end with worship. We're going to end with beholding the glory of the Lord, meaning Moses and that mountain. What a great time for him just to like worship and enjoy God. We're going to have some just alone time to say, let's just enjoy our Lord. Let's behold the beauty, the beauty of the Lord. In his temple, we're going to inquire. We're going to seek after. To inquire in his temple, to seek after, that's what we're going to do here. We just want to end our time with just some worship. I just want to encourage you guys, let the words that maybe you've, you've sung before become brand new. Read it, believe it, trust it, pray over it. Spend some time gazing into his word. We just want to give some room to be transformed into the image of Jesus as we behold Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again. There is no one like you. Lord, I just ask for any, anything that was maybe lost, anything that was unclear, that you, Jesus, would make, bring clarity. Thank you so much for the truth that Jesus we are not condemned, but we are made righteous. We are not dead, but we're made alive. Thank you, Jesus, that this is not just information, but this is your spirit trying to transform us more into the son of, of you, God. Just we thank you. Lord, I just ask that you just be, just be here now as we sing, as we worship, as we pray. God, as we just think on the scripture that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom that we can behold you with an unveiled face, nothing between us and you, God. Just there's this unveiling that Jesus, we can just see you in your word. But we look forward to the day. We look forward to the day that you promise that it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right now, it's through a mirror, but one day face to face. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that one day we'll be face to face that one day you'll transform our lowly body into the image of your glorious son. Thank you that this transformation takes place now in some minor way, but we have this great hope, Jesus, that this transformation will fully take place when we see you face to face, for we shall be like you. So God, I ask that your word would just do something in our hearts as we sing, as we praise, as we cry out, that Jesus, you would produce within us transformation by your spirit in your wonderful name, amen.